Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 3rd, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Character in the Crucible, will be taught to us by church elder Joe Infranco out of Genesis chapters 39 through 41. Enjoy. All right, so this week we are going to be in Genesis chapters 39 through 41. So open your Bibles. And uh, we're picking up the story now of Joseph. When we last saw Joseph, remember he was thrown into the pit by his brothers. He was sold to some Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver. And uh, now we're picking up his story in Egypt where he has been purchased by Potiphar, who we're told is an officer or the chief, of, the chief guard in Pharaoh's army. It's actually quite a high, quite a prestigious position. But we wanna keep the whole flow of the story in mind because it's a redemption story that started back in Genesis chapter three. It's a promise to Abraham that he's going to bless all the nations through his seed and God spoke to Abraham, who was still Abram at the time in Genesis 15, and he said unto Abram, know of a certainty or know of a surety that your seed will be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and they will serve them, and they're going to afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, I'm going to judge, and afterward they'll come out with great substance. So Israel now, the nation, the the holy nation of kings and priests that God has purposed for the salvation of all of mankind has to end up in a nation where they're going to be slaves for 400 years. And now we're picking up the story how God accomplishes that, how he turns this, how Israel is going to end up in Egypt, and 400 years later the story continues through Exodus. There'll be a Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph, and the affliction of Israel is hard, leading to the great Exodus, the sacrifice sacrifice of the lamb, you know the whole story. So we pick up now with Joseph, and he's in the house of Potiphar. Now, God calls us to do good. First Peter says, for uh, this you have, this you, to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Did you catch that? Christ suffered as an example to us so that we might follow in his steps. Now that's not a particularly attractive message to hear. Nobody likes to think about suffering. I don't think any sane person ever asks God for suffering, even if scripture assures us in places like James 1 that it's good for us and afterward it brings peaceable you know, fruits. I don't know about you, as for me, if it's suffering, my prayer is usually, God, can we skip this part of the program? And this is not unusual, Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane prayed three times what? If it's possible for this cup to pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So the culture of Egypt at this time was, was very highly civilized. It was polytheistic. Um, Potiphar is an interesting person. The, in, in the Hebrew, he was a soris, which is this high officer 
But the root word for that suggests he was a eunuch. It was a common practice in Egypt and other ancient cultures that if you were a high advisor or a guy to a king or something or a pharaoh, that you underwent castration candidly and that was considered an honor so you would not have divided attentions when you were serving the king. Now that's an interesting fact to bear in mind if indeed Potiphar was a eunuch, maybe give some context to the story that's about to come. A lot of Bible scholars believe that the prophet Daniel, who was in Babylon and then served kings of Persia as well, or media rather, um, that Daniel was also a eunuch. It was, it, this was a kind of a common practice. Now, you all know how the story begins in chapter 39. We can't go verse by verse. So I'm going to try to skip the, skim along here to give you some kind of an overview. So Potiphar's wife, keeps approaching Joseph, basically you know, asking him to have sexual relations. And Joseph keeps declining, he refuses. He, he has a sense of what's right and what's wrong, and he's now become the head of Potiphar's house. It says in the account that Potiphar basically didn't even pay attention to things, he just pushed it all over to Joseph. Joseph took care of everything. And this is a pattern in Joseph's life. People trust him, we're going to see that in other places. So finally, one day, there's no one in the house. He, she walks over to him, and uh, he says an interesting thing. He says, don't do this thing. You know, I, I can't sin against God. And she grabs hold of his robe, and the garment, the beged in, in uh, Hebrew, would be a long, uh, kind of a fancy robe. It's interesting, Joseph has got robe issues. First he gets a robe from his father. Some translations say a robe of many colors. That might not be the actual translation. Whatever it was, it was apparently, a, it may have been a, a robe with long sleeves. Sleeves were kind of a luxury. You're making a robe in ancient culture. It's practical. You just want something to cover you. But that robe, which was a source of envy and jealousy to his brothers, became an issue. Well, now there's another robe, and, and so Pontius, Potiphar's wife um, you know, is so determined, she grabs hold of it, and Joseph just actually runs away. You know, 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, flee youthful lusts. He does that. You know, maybe Timothy got the idea, or Paul got the idea from him, I don't know. I think Paul would have understood it anyway. So Joseph flees, and now she is a scorned woman. And so she calls over the household servants. And she says to them in verse 14, that Hebrew slave that my, my husband brought in is here, some translations say, to laugh at us. The idea is he's mocking us. But you notice she says us. She tries to kind of enlist the servants on her side. He's here doing this to all of us. Now why is she doing that? Well, maybe some of the servants have observed things and know a little something. Maybe she's recruiting some help in what's going to happen. However it works, when Potiphar comes home, it says that he's, he's, he's angry. And um, an interesting thing that we see here, and this is going to be the first part, several places we'll see it. Joseph, we're you know, we can see from his life, is a type of Christ. And we use that word, some of you may not be around theology for a while, so a type just means it's a picture of somebody. There's a similarity. There are aspects of a person's life that you see kind of repeated. There are characteristics that show up again in somebody else. So that's called typology or it's a type. So the interesting thing here to me is that Joseph never attempts to defend himself. At least there's no record of it. 
Now, maybe he thought Potiphar is not going to buy it even if I do, but maybe there's something else in play. But it seems like he really is a type of Christ. In the great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, um, Isaiah says at 53, seven, that like a lamb before his shearers, he's, he's dumb before his captors. In other words, he doesn't speak, he doesn't defend himself even though he's in the right. And this is exactly what happened. When Jesus appears before Pilate, Pilate at one point in the account is amazed and he says, why aren't you defending yourself? Don't you understand? I have the power to put you to death. And then Jesus speaks and says this. He says, you would have no power or authority over me at all, except it was given to you from on high by God. Therefore, the sin of of those who gave me over is worse than your sin, which scares Potiphar that in a dream, Potiphar, pardon me, Pilate, that in a dream that his, his wife has. But Joseph now is quiet and so he ends up in prison. So this is the thing we want to, the first point we want to make for your notes, I want to take note of Joseph's character. Joseph's character. You know, somebody once said, character is what you are when nobody is watching. Joseph's character is this, he was determined to obey God and he was determined to trust God. And we're going to see this in everything that happens, in every bad situation he ends up in. His character is to fully trust God and to submit to the circumstances because he has a belief, he has a faith that God is in charge and will do things according to his will. And, and so jo- this is Joseph's character. He's trusting God and he never stops doing things with excellence. Even when he's in a jail cell, the jailer looks and says, wow, that's some talented guy there. I, I trust him to do things. First Peter two, verses 20 through 23. Peter writes, what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it? Uh, in other words, if you do something bad and you suffer for it, does that credit you? I mean, you know, does, is, it, is it good that you get beaten because you were obnoxious or you broke the law? Well, no, not really. Um, but if when you do good and suffer and you endure it, in other words, you suffer it with patience, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. My goodness, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. He looks down and he sees that character in us and that's something that God loves in us. It, it's, the, it's the way his, that the Son of God dealt with this kind of unjust suffering. For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's the cue that God is giving us, to trust the one who judges justly, even if it doesn't look like it's just in this life. So contrast Joseph already to his brother Judah. Jeff talked about Judah a bit you know, uh, last week in his R-rated story. So these are a few observations about Joseph, his character, his diligence. It was obvious to all, Potiphar had seen it, and it makes me think of uh, what God says to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.30, 
those who honor me, I will honor. I think that's a principle of God. I've seen that my entire Christian life. The times I choose to honor God, even in circumstances to my hurt, God honors that decision, and it's amazing. We worry about a little thing or a business deal or a relationship or something. My goodness, God is so much bigger than all of it, isn't he? He just does things, he just blows us away. But again, he had this understanding, and that is, as I said earlier, that all sin is ultimately sin against God. King David in his great uh, Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51, at 51 verse four says this, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God, and I've done evil in your sight. Now you might have asked, well didn't David sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against her husband? Yes, but ultimately all sin is against God because we're all creations of God. We're all accountable to God. And so this, this, is, this was what Joseph had treasured up in him. Reminds me of Psalm 119 where uh, the psalmist asks, you know, how can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it, guarding it according to your word. He had the word of God, you know, well, flourishing inside of him. So Joseph is sent to the prison, pardon me. I'm fighting a little bit of an allergy or something. So Joseph is sent to the prison. What was an Egyptian prison like? You may have an idealized notion of a prison from prisons today. By, by history and tradition, we understand the Egyptian prisons were built underground. The concept was more like a dungeon. There was a hole on the top, you let the person in, and uh, you can only imagine what it would be like down there. No light, no real ventilation. You can imagine the sanitation. You can imagine what a miserable place it was and why Joseph was suffering so much and wanted to get out. And you know, he it, it did not receive special treatment, at least, uh, you know, certainly not um, initially. He, you know, the, um, he, he probably had his, uh, his feet bound. Um, it's, it's, it says in one of the Psalms that he, was, he, he actually had like a, a metal collar around his neck. So this is a miserable kind of place. All right, so testing. Testing is an integral part of the Christian life. There's just no way around it. You know, there's a promise that Jesus makes in John 16, 33. It's not one of those promises that make it a magnet on your refrigerator, you know? But the promise is, in this world, in this life, you will have tribulation. It's a promise, there's no exceptions. But Jesus says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world, yeah. So it's really, it really is a good promise. But the concept of tribulation is interesting. It's the, the Greek word is thlipsis. It appears 45 times in the New Testament, but we get the word tribulation actually from a Latin word. In the Latin translation, it captures the idea of it. It's for the Latin word, the tribulum. What was a tribulum? A tribulum was a harvesting tool, and in the early stages of harvesting, it was actually just kind of a stone that was curved. And the idea was you would take grain and you would throw it on the harvest floor and you would um, roll the stone over it. And when you rolled, it had to be the right weight, when you rolled the stone over it, it would crush, it would pulverize the wheat. And what it would do is it would separate that beautiful little edible part in the middle from what sometimes we call the chaff, the part that you can't eat. 
And then other people would come along with fans, and winnowing fans, you'll see references in scripture. They would take these fans and they kind of go through this motion. The lighter chaff would blow away and the edible wheat would stay on the floor, you'd gather it together. This was the process. But it's, I think it's a great picture of something, and that is the weight of the tribulum was so intense that, that the wheat actually came apart. There's actually a separation from the pressure. The, the, you, there has to be that kind of separation. There's a story in the Gospels about the disciples were walking through the fields with Jesus on a Sabbath day, and they plucked grains of wheat, which you were allowed to do under the law if you were just eating it, and they were doing this kind of motion with their hand. You know, why were they doing this? It was a way of applying pressure to get rid of this part that you can't eat in order to get to this part, and then you know, it was a little gummy substance. They popped it in their mouth. It was a nice little snack. Now, why is this so good a picture of us? There's all kinds of stuff that gets put on us. Some of it is bad, some of it is good, and you know what I have found in my life is when God is dealing with us, when in his mercy we're going through the pressure of the tribulum and something is being separated, a lot of things that are bad happen to us. You know, um, we believe things from the time that we're kids, we get told things. People are mistreated, there's all kinds of abuse. There's, you know, you get told things often enough when you're a kid, well what happens, you take it in, it becomes a part of you. You start believing it. And then it becomes a part of you that's not the image of God and what he has for you. And sometimes the process of getting those things off of us is really painful because it becomes a part of us. This chaff is very much a part of this wheat, but you can't get to the good part. You can't get to the image of Christ without getting rid of the stuff that God doesn't want there. And sometimes it works the other way. In Joseph's case, Joseph, from the time he was a kid, was told what? You're the favorite, here's the fancy coat. He had dreams, he had two dreams where his brothers, and in the second one, even his mother and his father were bowing down to him. Kind of heady stuff for a 17-year-old. I think Joseph was maybe just a little full of himself, you know what I'm saying? And um, so, when Joseph goes to the tribulation, his problem was he was believing his own press clippings, you know? The scripture says God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. And in order for Joseph to be the Joseph that God could use, parts of him had to be broken off. He had to go through the pressure of the tribulum. And this is an interesting thing. How many of you, just I'm curious, would like to be used by God? Anybody? Oh, look at that. Oh, I guess we're in the right place. And... Um, Think of people God used. There is not a one who does not go through the time of testing. Abraham waited till he was 100 to have the child of promise. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt growing up in, in being taught in, in all the culture and wisdom and all the, well, everything it was that you could have in Egypt. But in faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, he, he, he passed all that up and he suffered. But Moses was not fit to lead uh, Israel out until he had 40 years where? in the desert, in the time of testing, breaking, the unmaking of 40 years of Egypt. And at the end of 80 years, when God calls him and says, this is what I want you to do, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, Moses at that point is ready to say what? You got the wrong guy here. You see, this is the pattern that God does. David, King David, the greatest king of Israel, starts off in a really high note, killing Goliath, but he's not fit to be 
the man God wants him to be until he spends years running and hiding from Saul, living in caves, being hunted like an animal in fear of his life. And through the whole time, what does he do? He trusts God. He never stops trusting God in this tribulation. How many of you, I'm just curious, can say you went through a time in your life where you felt that weight of the tribulation, where it felt like, I know I can raise my hand for this, where you felt like it was just tearing something out of the inside of you. And in that process, you trusted God as difficult as it was, and you found that he did something amazing. He brought something to you you couldn't have imagined. How many of you, raise your hand, let me see. Wow, look around, okay? I wish we had time to stop the service and have every one of you come up here and tell those stories. Wouldn't that be amazing to hear? I mean, we would be standing here praising God and crying and laughing to see this incredible power of God in this delivery because he's true to his word and we always want to remember that. So uh, here's Joseph now and he's in prison, but it says in chapter 39, verse 23, the Lord was still with him. So we slide now into chapter 40. 40, Joseph is in prison and one day these two men are thrown into jail. One is a cupbearer, the other is a baker. The cupbearer was the one before Pharaoh drank the wine. He, um, the cupbearer took it and that was a sneaky way to get a drink like it was an illustration. And you're none the wiser for it, right? Okay. <laughs> And um, they would appear before Pharaoh and, um, you know, his food. Now, it may have been that what happened was something food-related. That's a kind of an interesting speculation. Um, now, today, if you go to a restaurant, you have a bad experience, you don't like it, you have an upset stomach, well, you have options. You'll savage that place in an online review. You'll let them know what you think of it, right? Well, it was much better being a Middle Eastern potentate. Why was that? You didn't like the food. It didn't agree with you. Hey, you hauled them all into prison until you thought about what to do with them. Now, maybe there was an investigation, we don't know, but these two fellows have dreams. So first, you know, when they're sitting there looking sad, Joseph says, what's wrong? What's, what's bothering you? And they said, we both had a dream last night, we don't know the interpretation of it. Well, Joseph, ever humble, uh, tell me, you know, God gives the interpretation of dreams. Well, says the cupbearer, I dreamt I saw a vine and there were three branches on it, beautiful grapes. I took them, I crushed them in a cup, I gave it to Pharaoh. Oh, says Joseph, good interpretation. In three days, you're gonna be lifted out of prison. You'll resume your old role serving Pharaoh. Well, the baker may be a little encouraged by this now. He goes, oh, let me tell you mine too. Okay, sure. There were three baskets on my head. They had food. Birds came along. Birds are never good in scripture. When you see them in parables and places, bad news. And ate the food. Well, says Joseph, the interpretation is in three days. Your head is off. Your body will be hanged up. And, um, you know, you, the birds will eat your flesh. He probably said, oh, can I get like his though? You know, can I have the... Is there some of his left over? I don't know. So sure enough, three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday, and both exactly what Joseph said happens, the two of them are released. But the good cupbearer forgets Joseph. Now how long was Joseph in prison? Well, the scripture says he was 17 when he went down to Egypt. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. So there's 13 years. He spends some time in Potiphar's house. So he's 13 years, he's a slave. But 
Um, I, I personally don't think it was that long in Potiphar's house. I think it might have been a matter of only maybe a couple years, three, four, five years or something like that. So most of his time, he's been in this miserable prison. And it's another two years after he helps the cupbearer and nothing happens, he's forgotten. Um, does God still speak to people in dreams? You know, I think he does. I've talked to missionaries and they say that in the Middle East, uh, in closed countries, God is appearing to Muslims and dreams and visions. I think I had one dream when I was a kid that I know had special meaning, but I've had three or four times in my Christian life of 42 years or so, where I, the only way I could describe it is God just gave me something in the middle of the night. Now, I've known people who say, oh, my best ideas come at night. I've had friends who sleep with a pad and a paper by the side, and they wake up in the morning, you know, in the middle of the night, and they write something down. So I had a time, uh, a couple times that this has happened, and they were all very meaningful. They were all good stories. I'll just tell you one. So there was a fellow in church I knew. I'll call him Bill, not his real name. And Bill and I had, I also have like, you know, disagreement about something. I thought it was kind of trivial. And afterward, I found out that Bill, you know, was sort of a, was angry about something. And, you know, somebody would come up to me and say, hey, what's going on? I talked to Bill. He was like really angry. And I said, what, really? So I went to Bill and I said, hey, Bill, how's everything? How, how are you doing? Oh, great, Joe. How are you? Oh, great. So I thought, okay, must be somebody's imagination, right? Well, it happened a couple times. And, and then, you know, finally somebody came up to me and said, boy, somebody was talking about a class you were teaching or this or that, and, and, um, and Bill just made the face and started ranting. I thought, all right, that's it. So I devised what I was going to do. The next Sunday, I, I was going to go up to Bill in church, and this is how I was going to open the conversation. I, I think kind of like Clint Eastwood here. You know, or like you feel lucky. But I... I, I I understand you have a problem with me, but you don't have the guts to tell me to my face. And I figured from there, it was just gonna go downhill, and that was good, I was ready. I was ready for whatever came. So the next Sunday, I see Bill in church, I start walking towards him, and some woman pops in front of me and says, Joe, would you do me a favor, would you pray with me about something? Oh, I stopped, I put on my church face, you know. Yeah, sure, what's, what's the matter? You know, try to make my voice sound compassionate. Yes, certainly, what's wrong? You know, like that. And um, the whole time we're praying, I'm just telling you the way it was at. I'm thinking, don't let Bill leave, just stay there. I'm locked and loaded, I'm ready for this, right? And we finish praying and I look up and argh, he's gone. So um, I figure, all right, I have to wait till next week. Well, a couple nights later, I'm in my bed. I wake up at three in the morning, I sit up in bed, I don't know how to describe it except to say it was like I got a divine download. It was like there was Bill and me and I knew exactly what I was supposed to say. I didn't think it was as good as my approach, frankly, but you know, it was just one of those things. So, um, and it was from Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. So the next Sunday, I saw Bill in church and I went up and I said, Bill, can I talk to you? Sure. I said, I have to ask your forgiveness. He said, about what? I said, well, you know, Matthew 5 says, if you know your brother has got something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Don't play church. Don't go through the rituals. Go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. I said, I knew you had a problem with me and I just, I, I just kind of built up this resentment towards you. I didn't do the right thing. I should have come to you 
and resolved it. Because it's more important. God wants us to, you know, and as much as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. God wants us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They really call the children of God. And so um, Bill was sort of taken and he said, well, only if you'll let me apologize first. I don't know what it was or how it got out of hand. So this is how you know the Holy Spirit is directing it. The following Sunday, I see a guy who worked with Bill. And he says, Jojo, did, did something happen with you and Bill? I said, well, like, why do you say that? He said, well, I teach a Bible study where he attends, where we work. And, and I was teaching in my, in my verse, he, I said, what were, what were you teaching on? Oh, Matthew 5, 23, 24. He said, and he said, I'm teaching, you know, uh, if you have, you know, your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. He said, he's just like sitting there like Google-eyed, or goggle-eyed, is it? I think goggle-eyed. And, uh, and he came over afterward and he said, it's really there, right? I said, what's there? That verse. Yeah, I just taught on it, yeah. Oh, he says, oh, Joe was really right. He did the right thing. And I said, you mean Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so there it was. So sometimes, I've had that happen three or four times. It's just a download in the middle of the night. Having said that, I don't think dreams are normative. They can happen. Sometimes dreams might just be what you ate. One time I was teaching at a, <laughs> uh, a pastor's conference, and some, one of the pastors got up and he said, I had this dream. I just feel like I want to tell you about it. And he went, and this was just quite a dream. And he said, what do you think? Did I, did I hear from God or was it something I ate? And I said, bad pizza, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Because um, especially, I, you know, you'll have a thing in the Southwest, being from New York, where pizza purists, there's no way you put pineapple and chicken on pizza and something does not happen in your dreams. So just be aware of that. You eat that pizza, you take whatever comes with it. Okay, <laughs> point two, Joseph's humility. Everywhere that Joseph went, as bad as this was, Joseph maintained this amazing um, humility. And um, uh, this humility now is going to help him because uh, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream while he's still languishing in prison. And in Pharaoh's dream, first he sees uh, and, and now um, we're in chapter 41. He sees first um, seven b- nice fat cows come out of the Nile River. It's really good hamburger meat there. And then he sees seven ugly gaunt cows and the gaunt ones end up coming up and they, they eat the Hebrew okal, they chew up. You know, it's kind of, they make a meal of it. Uh, the healthy cows, but they don't get any bigger. Then he, sees, he, he wakes up, he sleeps again, he sees seven grains of wheat, they're healthy, and then seven sickly ones come up and devour the, the seven good ones. And this is interesting, because the Hebrew word balas suggests like it devours it, like it swallows them whole. It's almost like it does away with them, that there's nothing left of them. Well, he calls for his counselors and advisors. Nobody can give the interpretation of the dream. And then... The cupbearer finally remembers. Oh, he says, my sin comes back to me this day. I remember. There's this guy in prison, you know, let's bring him out. So there's this amazing scene of destiny. Here's Joseph. He's been in slavery for 13 years, probably most of it in prison. He's penniless. He's a foreigner, and he's standing before the most powerful monarch in the world. And when this monarch says to him, I hear you can interpret dreams, four times he says to Pharaoh, 
God gives the interpretation of dreams. God will give Pharaoh, you know, in the chapter, look at verses 16, 25, 28, 32. He always credits God. Now, it might have been tempting to say, well, let me play this right. Yeah, Pharaoh, I can interpret dreams, you know? You really need me here and not down in that hole over there. No, that's not what he does. His character doesn't allow that. And after uh, he points to God and gives God the credit, uh, Pharaoh, uh, he, he, he doesn't end there, he gives a solution. He says, and here's what Pharaoh should do. Appoint wise overseers, and that's a good translation of that word, overseers. Take 20% of the good stuff in the good years, store it up, and when the bad years come, you'll be able to live, you'll be able to survive. Pharaoh is just amazed. He, he says, where are we going to find somebody who has this kind of wisdom? Look at this guy in whom the spirit of God, he, uses, he says, you know, Ruach Elohim, he uses the expression of God that Joseph would have used, not one of his polytheistic gods. I mean, it's like he sees this is this guy's God and look at him, look at his life, look at what he's done. And so uh, here's you know, some takeaways from this. When an immature Christian in a time of testing wants to ask, why me? A mature Christian asks, what is God trying to teach me? Mark Yule was talking to me and he said something like, your focus in waiting determines your fruitfulness. Oh, that's good, Mark. I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow that from you over here. So the last point is Joseph's reward. We really have to fly here now. The reward for faithfulness, you know, God says, and I mentioned earlier, 1 Samuel uh, 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, God says, I will esteem them lightly. And so Pharaoh's immediate response is, we're going to elevate this guy. His word is going to be supreme in the land. And uh, in fact, he uses an interesting Hebrew ex uh, kind of phraseology. Um, it, it's something like, at your mouth, all my people will kiss. So from that, that's, the mouth is sort of the source of words. And kissing was you know, viewed in the culture, it was esteeming. Uh, when you kiss somebody in Middle Eastern culture, you know, it was a little like the sense of kissing the ring. It, you were honoring that person, you were acknowledging them as a better, which makes Judas's betrayal of Jesus all the more poignant. When Jesus says, Judas, with a kiss you betray the Son of Man. Yeah, you know, um, to use a, a symbol of esteem and love and honor, you know, as a kind of betrayal. And so Joseph's life, just moving very quickly, uh, changes. Pharaoh gives him a new name, an Egyptian name, probably to make him more, you know, uh, better, you know more comfortable with the, or the culture to accept him a little better. He's given a wife, the daughter of the priest of An, and he has two children. And those two children are destined to become two tribes of Israel. And the name of somebody was always meaningful, especially in a book like Genesis. The name tells you something about character, destiny, things like that. So the first child is named Manasseh, which means forgetting. You know, does that mean he had amnesia? Well, no, but it means that he could put aside that suffering and forgive. In fact, we're going to see next week, he even forgives his brothers. It's one of the most powerful scenes in the scripture. You intended it for evil, but God used it for good. Because he had that godly filter and that godly perspective of everything that he did. And then he names his second son Ephraim, which means fruitful. It actually means doubly fruitful, meaning you know God has sort of blessed him over here. So just some, some closing thoughts. Um, profound picture type of Christ. 
Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus is sold for 30. Uh, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, Israel. Jesus is and rejected by them. Jesus is betrayed and rejected by Israel. Joseph goes into prison, um, but ultimately Joseph becomes the savior, not only of his people, Israel, but of the whole world, because the whole world's gonna beat a door to to, uh, Egypt to get that food. Jesus goes through the pains of suffering and death, but he ultimately saves not only Israel, but he becomes the savior of the whole world. So while the, I'm gonna ask the worship team to start making their way back up while I conclude with a few thoughts. What is Joseph's new name that you know, Pharaoh gives him? Well, we don't know. There are some guesses. The three most popular guesses on the meaning of Joseph's name are abundance of life, savior of the world, and God speaking life. Isn't that interesting? Uh, abundance of life, savior of the world, and God speaking life. Abundance of life. How about John 10.10? I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Savior of the world, you all quote John 3.16 from memory. God's word speaking. You know, Jesus says in John 6, he says, my words are life. God's word speaking life is, is here, something like Joseph's name. But in order to get those attributes, he had to endure the suffering to be conformed to the image of Christ. So I wanna ask you a question, and I'm going to come back up because I, we offer people prayer every week. And I know some, you know, it's sort of, I don't want it to ever become something like a ritual, you hear it or so, but, um, let me ask you a question. If you could ask Joseph what you went through, do you think it was worth it? How do you think he would respond? Yeah, in a heartbeat, right? If you asked him, were they glad uh, that he went through it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the final question, and then I'll be back up in a minute, uh, we're just going to worship for a bit, is are you in the tribulum now? Do you feel like maybe you're coming apart a little bit under the, weight, under the weight of that stone. How are you going to respond? You know, God has paid us an intolerable compliment. He's preparing us for eternity. He's preparing us for a life with him. And the only things that matter from this world that we take away are the character, the trust, and the faith that we have that's making us into what he's going to have us be in eternity. So if you've got something you're wrestling with today, you feel like you're in that position, don't feel like you've come to church, you've heard a message, you, you know, you sort of check the box, you're supposed to do it. Maybe come forward. We have a prayer team here. I'd love to pray with a few of you too. We have a prayer team. This is how we share one another's burdens. And there's a strength that comes for that. So if there's something going on in your life, maybe do something different, even if you've never done it before. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've never committed your life to Jesus, maybe a friend brought you along, how'd you like to start that relationship? Come down as well and we'll pray with you and tell you how to do that. So Highlands Church, blessings to you. Go with God. You all have a great day in the Lord. See you.